actually filming at the LHC. We're saying, look, you can be a scientist and, and you can still do things that you like and have fun. And you know what? Science is fun. everyone, and thank you for returning once again to the Monster Island Resort, your online radio show that goes bump in the night. My name is Miguel Rodriguez, and I am your host as I discuss horror in history, literature, art, film, and beyond. Today, and for a couple of episodes, actually, I'm going to bring you a little science with your science fiction. I'm going to speak today with an accelerator physicist named Luke Thompson, a man who, with a few of his scientist colleagues, has worked on a side project of keen interest to us monster fans and science geeks alike. Before I go on to that conversation, though, I want to extend my gratitude to photographer Amanda Duchot and film monster maestro Kenneth J. Hall for letting me use their domicile for recording this episode. It was very kind of them and their cats Rusty and Gidget to host the Monster Island Resort for a day. Thanks, guys. And I want to say also that Ken Hall has just released the horror workout on DVD, the Horror Workout is a splatter spoof of 80s workout videos featuring none other than the legendary Scream Queen Linnea Quigley of Return of the Living Dead and Night of the Demons fame, as if you needed me to tell you that. This project is fun for fans of 80s-style horror comedy, and you can order it now on www.horrorworkout.com. There will be a link online on the main website of monsterislandresort.org, and don't forget to join the conversation. Follow me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Monster Resort. And on Thursdays, you can join us for the Drive-In Mob on Twitter with hashtag Drive-In Mob as we watch drive-in style films and discuss them on Twitter. And you can check out the uh, schedule for that at driveinmob.com. It's a lot of fun. And you'll also see we're down to the final four of the Drive-In Mob Madness bracket. Some of our favorite monsters and characters are pitted against one another. Who will win? Go to driveinmob.com to find out. And now let's get on with today's topic. A combination of CERN's Large Hadron Collider and the zombie mythos with a little film called Decay. Good morning. This meeting has been called because last night there was an emergency beam dump. Director, we have to stop the LHC until we assess the danger. No, finding the Higgs is the highest priority. Dr. Niven's got me working on this Higgs bioentanglement simulation. The God particle? I'm meant to be investigating how it acts on living tissue. You think Higgs radiation's dangerous? It's not you. The LHC is ramping. The team's still down there. Shut it off. We're gonna die.
I am sitting in Hollywood right now, speaking with Luke Thompson, who is the director of the film DK. Hello, Luke. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so, first of all, why don't you? You're, you're not just a director. Why don't you talk a little bit about what uh, your your day job? I guess we'll say. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm an accelerator physicist. Uh, I'm currently doing my PhD at Manchester University in the UK. Um, so I part of my work is at CERN on the Large Hadron Collider, uh, and I am on a couple of projects which are essentially involved in upgrading the accelerator. <laughs> so. There's a lot of work being done to sort of maximize the amount of particle physics that we can get out of these machines uh, since, you know, obviously they're huge projects. So rather than build a new one every 10 years, the idea is to really squeeze out every last drop of performance. So that's kind of what I'm involved with at the moment. How easy is it to upgrade a machine like that? Well, it's the kind of thing where, it, you know, people don't go into this blind. You know, mm -hmm. when you're spending so much money and time and effort and, and resources on, on such a huge project, you have a responsibility to go in with a big long-term plan, and those plans change, but it always involves some sort of idea of how you're going to get the most out of it. You know, you're not just going to sort of think in the short term. So it's not easy to upgrade it, but it's something that people have been working on since before the LHC was even built. I mean, these things take sort of – you always have sort of a 10-year lead time on these things. So by the time the LHC was built, a lot of these – projects had already begun in terms of planning the next upgrades and obviously there's there's input on that from what physics discoveries you make so finding the higgs boson for instance mm -hmm. um, th there are various different ways in which we could upgrade the, the lhc but which ones we actually take kind of depends on what we see what the experiments end up finding and what's going to be most useful for us to upgrade so finding the higgs boson means that we take root x rather than root y because you know root y may not be so useful anymore um, and if we hadn't found the higgs boson we would have done something different uh, because we, we would have perhaps for instance looked at trying to increase the energy more um, because we'd, we'd be saying okay well we haven't found the higgs the higgs boson in the energy range that we can sort of look at so if we're going to keep looking for it, then we've, then perhaps we've got to increase the energy range. There's, there's a bunch of different considerations. Well, it's fascinating how what you learn completely informs how you use the tool yeah. in the first place. So uh, just uh, so the LHC uh, stands for Large Hadron Collider. A lot of misconceptions about it. What What is its purpose and what are you using it for? Yeah, so the... When you're looking at sort of the fundamental levels of the universe, you know, the, the smallest things you can, you can even imagine, um, you can't, you know, you can't, you can't just look at an atom with a microscope because on those sort of levels, everything's quantum mechanical, which make, you know, quantum mechanics doesn't make any sense intuitively. So when you get to that level, like light doesn't even work in the same way. So you can't, you know, you can't, you physically cannot focus light well enough to, to see something as small as an atom. And that only gets worse when you get inside the atom. You know, if, if the atom was the size of like a, a football pitch, then the nucleus would be, would be the size of, you know, the, the dot in the middle where you, I mean, okay, I'm <laughs> soccer, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, I think yeah. most people understand yeah. that. <laughs> the, the nucleus would be, would be like the size of, of the dot in the middle where you, where you start, you, you start with the ball. Right. Um, so, you know, you've got this, you've got an atom, which itself is a tiny thing. And then when you're trying to look at subatomic particles, they're orders of magnitude smaller. So to, to look at these things, it basically turns out that the only way you can, you can see these things is to 
and it sounds crude, but smash things together at really high energies. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the higher energy something is, when you're talking, I mean, I, I think people are, there, there's this general idea in, in public consciousness about, um, you know, wave particle duality. The idea that when you get to quantum mechanics, things aren't as they seem and particles aren't really particles. They're kind of waves and it's all confusing. Um, <laughs> even to me, I mean, I, you know, it, there's no intuitive understanding of these things. Um, and the higher energy something is, the smaller the wavelength of that particle becomes. So the, the smaller and smaller things you can probe with it. So the higher energies you get to, the smaller things you can see. And this is kind of our, how we, how we look at sort of uncovering the fundamental rules and relationships and particles and forces that, that govern the universe. Mm-hmm. So the Large Hadron Collider takes protons and accelerates them to nearly the speed of light and collides them together, and uh, then we look at what happens in those interactions, and that's essentially what's going on. So you're learning about things via the relationship between them when they are collided together. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of it's in in a way it's indirect because I mean I think I think the way that we think of something being direct is is when you can see it or touch it or or feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing like that with with subatomic physics. You know, you just you you have to. You have to kind of look at it in a sort of slightly abstract way. You have to you have to say, okay, well, we've got this huge detector, and there's all this there's this huge spray of particles that's come out of this little tiny explosion mm-hmm. where we've collided these things together, and you trace all of those particles back along their along their path to find out what happened in you know in that sort of nanoscopic interaction point at the be- at the beginning. Well, it's really interesting because science historically has has relied so much on observation, mm-hmm. and uh, and what do you do when you can't directly uh, observe? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's 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 yeah, it's really fascinating because everything that we do is kind of you know the the, the saying standing on the shoulders of giants, and that's absolutely true. Everything that we do uh, in particle physics is based on sort of the the basic understanding that we've got from you know from hundreds of years ago, from fifty years ago, from ten years ago. Um, of, of things that are more obviously sort of directly observable. And that's how we sort of understand the, the laws of physics that go into it. And we can say, okay, well, we know what these particles are doing because we know they follow these laws, which allows us to see sort of the deeper, more fundamental laws that they're, that they're following uh, when you see what they do. You know, one thing that uh, I found very fascinating is NASA has a, uh, a widget online called the scale of the universe. Mm-hmm. And it starts off at human scale. So what you're seeing are uh, the size of objects or things in relation to our human size. And as as you scroll left, you look at smaller scales. Mm -hmm. And as you scroll right, you look at larger scales. So smaller scales go down to like planks and and, uh, wavelengths. And the larger scales goes all the way up to the size of the known universe. What has always fascinated me and other teachers is that there is more area to scroll for the smaller yeah. uh, things. <laughs> yeah. It's like there's, there's the, as far as areas of magnitude goes, there's mm-hmm. so much more empty space to go through as you get smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah. To... Which is not to say that there's not enough of the big stuff, because, I mean, that's... You know, <laughs> exactly. completely unimaginable. And I think, I think that's really what it is. It's that until you, until you see these tools, they're really useful, because until you see them... You, you, you don't have any idea how immense the universe is and how small the universe is and, and everything in between. You know, the, the, the huge 
range of, of phenomena and sizes and, and effects and, and, and physical laws and everything in our universe is just mind blowing, you know. And when, when you when you kind of the, 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 the few sort of moments when you can get that sort of feeling of wonder where, where it kind of clicks for a second and you realize how massive everything is. I, I think that's great personally, and I think it's a really important thing for people to experience to want to, to sort of have a better understanding of their place in the universe. Well, yeah, and it's really it, it's um, hard to wrap your mind around it. That's why it seems yeah. so mysterious. Yeah, which you know leads to uh, not only the pursuit of science and understanding, but also opens up the imagination for storytelling. Uh, <laughs> which kind of leads me to my next topic, which is you know what you're talking about. You have this expertise as did you say you're an engineer, right? Well, accelerator physicist. So it's it kind of it's it's something that it's, it's sort of. Um, it kind of it's it's, a, it's an applied science certainly, mm -hmm. but obviously it's got these very close links to to particle physics, and it kind of it, for me it kind of bridges the gap between physics and engineering, and I kind of like that. Um, I like having something that's uh, for, for me a bit more hands on in a sense. Yeah. Well, it's um, definitely great to take something very theoretical and actually work with it and apply it. Exactly. Yeah, and I I, I love that personally. So, in your experience applying these really off the wall theories. Where do you find time to make a zombie film? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I possibly just don't sleep. But um, it's, I think, actually, this is, this is something that comes up a lot. Like, I've seen a lot of people online sort of saying, well, shouldn't they be doing, doing science? And it's like, well, you know, we, we have time like you. <laughs> yes. Did you not be doing your job instead of posting these comments on the internet? Uh, <laughs> nice point. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a... It's a weird thing that people seem to think that scientists uh, have to do nothing but science all the time. Uh, <laughs> that said, you know, obviously it, it takes a lot of time to do a PhD and it takes a lot of time to make a film. So um, mm -hmm. it was difficult, to say the least. And sort of certainly the last few months of sort of editing and, and doing the VFX and doing sound and stuff, I was getting to the point where, honestly, if it, if it, if it took much longer, I probably couldn't really deal with it mentally anymore because it just you know a huge effort but you know you get people together in in the time that you have free and there were plenty of times that we did shoots overnight you know yes. we'd be running the tunnels um at midnight just getting stuff done and, and and if you don't get it done then okay you postpone it and uh you, you do your pickup shots the next day or the next night or, or whenever you can so it's just a case of um finding whatever time you can and and working with that really i think the reason anyone wonders about the time factor is anyone who's had experience working on a film mm. it's so all encompassing yeah <laughs> particularly in post as you mentioned yeah and this this is something that that certainly i didn't i didn't really understand beforehand and <laughs> i don't think anybody else on the film did either and it kind of it ended up snowballing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and I think it's one of those things where, you know, if, 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 I, if I was looking at it now, uh, to say, you know, looking back at it and saying, okay, would I do this again? It'd be like, hell no. I, I would possibly face doing that again. I mean, I, I, I probably will do it again at some point. You know, I, I, I have all sorts of these projects going on. So I'm sure I will eventually hit one that's, that's as big as this. And I'll go into it, you know, with, with all guns blazing, not looking back. But to, to sort of repeat the same one again, you'd be like, oh, no, there was, there, was, there was some stuff there. And it was great. It was it was a great experience. But at the same time, you know, like looking at looking back and wanting to go through it again is, I don't know, it's not something I could face immediately. It's pure madness. <laughs> it really is. Uh, but it's it's phenomenal to say to look back and, and say you accomplished it. Yeah, really proud of that. And I, and I, and I hope everybody else on the film uh, is really proud of it as well, because we really. And they're all employees at CERN as well. 
Uh, mostly, yeah, sort of 95%. There's, there's, there's the occasional sort of, you know, we, we had a couple of people who are sort of partners of, of scientists or, or people who were brought in from the outside, but nobody, certainly no one sort of professional. It was all kind of through, through sort of a, a network. It was, you know, a, a degree removed from, from, from a scientist or something like that. Right. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was very much a sort of a homegrown thing in that sense, which I, I, you know, I think, I think that's part of the charm of it. And it is, it is just an amateur film, but I think we really achieved something quite amazing. Well, definitely. You're, you're not filmmakers. No. So. Does that count? (laughs) Was that? Well, you are now. Absolutely. (laughs) But, uh, (laughs) but you didn't go to film school. You, you did this as a, as a side project and, uh, and what you came up with is actually really uh, interesting. It's fascinating to me that you were able to combine the two, (laughs) the two areas. Yeah, well, we'll we'll see if I manage to get my PhD finished, won't we? Well, yes. <laughs> so uh, you've made this zombie film, and it's amazing. It takes place at CERN in in the um, is in the bowels of the building. Yeah. And uh, what what does CERN think of this? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's it's a bit complicated because I mean, obviously, there's there's sort of the, the, there's two sides of it. There's there's sort of the legal side where. I think I think it has to be very clear that you know we didn't. This wasn't authorized by CERN. It's not endorsed by CERN. It's not an official project of CERN or anything like that. It doesn't it doesn't portray anything true to life. It's it's completely fictional. There's all there's all this sort of legal stuff. But apart from that, I think people generally have quite a good sense of humor about it. I mean, um, it's the the way I see it certainly is that it's it's if anything, it's positive. Uh, publicity, anything, anything that sort of brings this stuff into the public eye is good news, I think. And there's always going to be sort of conspiracy theorists and people oh, say, oh, you're going to blow up the world with black holes or whatever, whatever, <laughs> or this week. But, you know, those sort of people are, are going to find anything they can anyway. They'll have that anyway, regardless. I don't think we're really adding to any, any sort of, any, any fuel to the fire there. Um, right. <laughs> so I think, I think overall it's, it's, and I, I think that, you know, uh, at least unofficially, I think I think they are aware of this that, that you know it's actually quite a good thing, and it's and it's kind of nice to show that scientists aren't just workaholics who do nothing else with their lives. You know, we're we're real people. We have hobbies, um, and and we like to do other things as well. So I think that's quite nice. Do you think, on some level, we with the as you said, the conspiracy theorists or, or the black hole, yeah. world eating theorists. Do you think on some level your film is exposing the kind of uh, absurdity of that? I think I think on on the on the very highest level, yeah. That's <laughs> that's it's when when we decided to do this, we were kind of like this. Is, we can you know you know we can really sort of say something satirical here, and and yeah. the idea is people think that that the LAC is going to going to destroy the world with black holes. Or what's more ridiculous than black holes? Zombies. Zombies. Okay. <laughs> zombies at a particle collider. How absurd is that? So as much as, as much as the film's kind of played with a straight face, it's got, you know, we, we've really gone for that kind of B-movie feel, you know, that it's got a ridiculous premise, and the whole storyline is ridiculous. So, and, and actually what's really nice is that different people watch it very differently. So mm-hmm. we've had people who are, you know, genuinely sort of screaming at it, you know, and, and being scared, which is, it's so cool when you see people reacting like that. It's like, yes, I've done something good here. Um, <laughs> but you also have people who, who who are getting all the jokes, you know, who, who mm. are seeing all the little beat movie references and just just laughing the whole way through. And it's it's really cool to see that it's kind of. I'm really proud that that we managed to make it work on sort of both of the key levels that we tried to make it work. 
you know? And right. it doesn't it doesn't work for everyone. It's not a blockbuster movie. It's not, you know, we don't know what we're doing. But, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, we, we achieved that. And, and, and for, for certainly for, for at least a sizable number of people to, to enjoy it and, and in the way that we were hoping they would, I think that's great, you know? Yeah, well, I think the source of that triumph actually comes from the tone of the film as you play it straight. It's not all this wink, wink, nudge, nudge at the camera, yeah. which a lot of satires kind of fail because that's what they do. It's not too self-aware in that way. Yeah, and I think, like I say, we, we, we seem to have managed to, to put all this stuff under the surface that, that, that people get it, yes. uh, without it without it necessarily taken away from the fact that you can watch it seriously, you know? So I yeah. think that's... Yeah, it works on, on both levels. More philosophically, do you think that science fiction horror, with all its historically questionable science... <laughs> uh, <laughs> Do you think it has the power to inspire the curiosity to have people go towards the sciences? I certainly don't see why not. I mean, I am a massive sort of sci-fi geek. You know, mm -hmm. I, I've read all of the all of the sci-fi classics, all the sort of Asimov and Heinlein and, and Arthur C. Clarke and all that sort of stuff. And a lot of that early stuff was really kind of the beginnings of, of futurism. You know, it was, it was particularly people like Arthur C. Clarke, who not just imagining... Uh, new technologies, but sort of how how that would affect life, and I think something like that that sort of certainly that sort of scenario is is exactly the kind of thing that can inspire people to to get interested in science. I think in the specific case of decay of our film, again we are sort of making fun of the the portrayal of science in horror B-movies and stuff like that. But at the same time, you know, we're actually filming at the LHC. We're saying, look, you can be a scientist and, and you can still do things that you like and have fun. And you know what? Science is fun. And, and we're kind of trying to say all these things as well as making fun of some other things. So I would, I would hope that it at least raises awareness. Um, and I, th I, think, I think anything like this can, you know, it take, takes all kinds, right? So I think anything yeah. like can, can inspire the right person. Well, I can't tell you how many scientists I've spoken to who the, the birth of their curiosity in the sciences was from Earth versus the Flying Saucers or them or something like that. Exactly. <laughs> and then they pursued it and actually, you know, learned actual science. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that's one of the the benefits of 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 genre cinema like this is it kind of tickles our imagination a little bit. Yeah, and I think I think imagination is a big part of it because I think it's it's very difficult to be a scientist without some sort of some sort of imagination and without some sort of sense of wonder, you know, because you you are exploring things and you have to care about that and you have to you have to care enough about it to sort of try things out and you might come up with a theory that you have no idea if it's correct or not, but you, you're willing to take a chance on it. You know, you, you, you put a significant amount of time into investigating that and, and putting, it, putting together an experiment and finding it out. And you can't do that without creativity and curiosity and, and drive and interest. So I think there's a lot of overlap. Definitely. Uh, and it's also interesting because, you know, the classic science fiction horror people like William Aland or George Powell or, or you know, Ray Harryhausen, yeah. um, they were artists... Uh, and not scientists. So <laughs> do you think your background allows you to play with the science gone wrong stories a little more effectively? Yeah, I, well, I would hope so. And, and that's certainly the, the, like I say, with the whole black hole stuff, that, that's certainly the way that we've, we've come at it. We've, we, I, to be honest, it, I, I've, I've often said that one of, the, one of the key ideas behind it is, is that what we're sort of saying with the film is, you know, we're scientists, right? We know what we're talking about. 
And in this film, we are lying to you. <laughs> you <know>? Yes. <laughs> it's like <laughs> everything we say is total rubbish. And if you can't trust us, then you shouldn't be trusting Hollywood, right? You know, so, right. so that's kind of the angle that we've taken on that. So it's, um, it's a pretty great extent to which you've bent the rules of physics for the film. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I hope people appreciate it for, for, for that aspect. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's great for anyone especially who, uh, who is able to truly understand how much that's been bent. But that's really fun. The black hole theorists and, and the fear of the LHC... I have always seen as kind of our generation's atomic age. <laughs> yeah. But one thing is the atomic age had, and still does to some extent, has a long life. But the fear of, of the Hadron, Large Hadron Collider, while you know there are still conspiracy theorists out there, you don't see the black hole... When it first came into being, there was a lot of it and it was reported a lot, but you don't really hear a lot about that anymore. The panic seems to have a shorter life. I was wondering if you thought that's partially because information is more easily accessible now than it was in the 50s. I, I, no, I absolutely think that. I, I think it's something that's, something that's happened fairly recently, and this is, this is a fantastic thing, is that, that science is kind of it's starting to edge away from its public perception as being an ivory tower thing, you know, that, that, that you have regular people and you have scientists. Because even if, you know, even if somebody on the street doesn't, doesn't do science for a living, if that's not their job, it's still very important for, for everyone to have at least a basic understanding of what science is about. And those sort of, the, the common misunderstandings about what science is about seem to be getting turned around gradually. People are more aware of, of what science actually is and why it's important. And I think it's also the, the case that, you know, with our, with our sort of modern society being more and more based around technology, there are fewer and fewer places for pseudoscience to, to hide, you know, right. because, you know, you, you have a smartphone, right? And that essentially works on quantum mechanics, which is which is nuts, you know. It's it's it's, it's this thing that makes that, that makes no sense to anyone, and all you can do is just you know do the maths. But yes, it, it works so well that these things that you you know you call your mom on them uh, once a week to, to to let her know you're all right, and you send texts to your girlfriend, and and you 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 look at your emails while you're walking around in the street with this tiny little computer in your hand, you know, and it's all because of semiconductors and transistors and silicon and stuff. But, and it all works because of quantum mechanics. And the fact that everything we use is built on solid science, on this solid foundation of science that's been building up for hundreds of years, means that I think people, I think, I think it's just, it's more an everyday thing now. It used to be that there's, there's everyday life and there's science, and now the two are merging. And I think that means that people are more interested in it. They're more likely to have sort of looked up about it and, and have a more, a, a more fundamental understanding of what it's about and why it's important, and that people... You know, it, it doesn't seem like magic anymore. Yeah, I do think it is more ingrained in our everyday life. And I'm reminded that at Comic-Con, because I live in San Diego, one of the most popular panels is for the Mythbusters. Yeah. <laughs> so people are lining up for hours to see them more than, you know, Sylvester Stallone or whatever else, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it does seem like pop culture is embracing science more now than ever before yeah. as well. And I think it's, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm quite happy to sort of self-identify as a geek, you know, <laughs> which, which 20 years ago probably would have, would have mean that, 
you'd have some guy beating you up in the in, in the parking lot after after school, right? But right. Like nowadays, it's fine. You know, there's geek chic, and it's kind of cool. And and it seems like intelligence is not stigmatized in a way that it, that it perhaps used to be in popular culture. And these things all seem to be coming together to to, to really improve the image of science in in the public view. And yeah, I'm I'm really glad of that personally. And I, I think it's I think it's for everyone's benefit. Yeah, well, and it gives me a really fascinating show to give people because uh, I I'm loving this conversation right now. But uh, uh, well, I'll try not to talk too much because I do have a tendency to do that. But uh. <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> As you mentioned before, you were talking about the black hole theorists, and you wanted to come up with something more absurd than black holes. So <laughs> you used zombies. You've decided to play with this whole zombie myth, which. Is a real, it's a modern monster, and right now it's experiencing some extreme popularity. How do you account for that popularity? What is so fascinating to us about this zombie? It's a good question, and to be honest, it's 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 one that I don't feel I have a solid answer for. I think it's I think it's something that a lot of people are sort of trying to figure out right now. Like, what is what is it that attracts us to this idea? And I think if you if you do want to sort of look at that, you've got to break it down into various different things because there are various aspects of zombie mythology which are kind of almost separate from each other, that, that, that are all quite attractive. I mean, you, you have the sort of the post-apocalyptic side of things, and I think there's a big element of escapism there, and, mm-hmm. and sort of, I don't know, power fantasy. Because if, you know, if, if, it's, if it's the apocalypse, that means that a sizable proportion of people have died, but you've survived, you know? Yeah. If, you're, if, you're, if you're identifying with one of the characters, it means that you're a character who survived. And, uh, you know... It, it's kind of a, an interesting thought experiment. Like, what would I do in this situation? You know, how would I survive? Would I would I be one of those guys that you know, as soon as anybody's bitten, you just you you cold and and, and calculate and you, and you kill them? Or have you got more compassion than that? Is it a good idea to have more compassion? And it's kind of it's it's the, there are lots of variables that I think make it a fun kind of fantasy to to imagine yourself in. I think there's a romantic notion to uh, kind of a return to the human basics hunter gatherer type thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think I think I think when you're looking at things like you know, I mean, the obvious one is, is The Walking Dead, um, that 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 people are forced to sort of fall back on all these more basic things. And yeah, I think there is a romance to do with that. But then you know, you've also got just the sort of the you know the fun side of zombies which is just that you've got armies and, and waves of <laughs> undead things that you can that you're fully entitled to shoot in the face <laughs> <laughs> and that's always fun because you know you would never you would never do that to a human being but but with a with a zombie it's like well it's not a human being anymore and that's that's <laughs> important part of the mythos that they're somehow unrecoverable and in most sort of zombie universes there's there's somebody trying to find or they're trying to turn people back but it Almost universally fails, which kind of, and, and there's there's sort of a there tends to be a point where where people are like, oh, they're dead and they're not coming back. Okay, we may as well just kill them in ridiculously <laughs> cool ways. And you know, we've got a moment like that in in Decay, uh, where yeah. we sort of specifically said, okay, they're dead, you're allowed to kill them now. And and before that point, we kind of have our characters, you know, to some to some basic extent, kind of there's 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 a, there's a spectrum of emotions, you know, there's, there's there's some of them who are who are quite happy to kill them without knowing whether or not they're dead. And there are some who, who go to all sorts of lengths to to not kill them, and then you know we kind of say, okay, the gloves are off now, uh, <laughs> and it's just let's let's uh, let's kill these guys in some inventive ways. And that's 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 I think that's kind of the other major part of why zombies are fun because you can get away with stuff like that. 
Definitely. Yeah. And, and like, I guess that's part of why you chose that particular myth to use in your film. How'd you go about storytelling? Oh, with difficulty. Um, <laughs> so it's even, I think when you watch the film, it doesn't come across as a particularly complex plot. You know, it's more complex than some, but it's, it's not, I don't know, it's not Inception. <laughs> but uh, we had to go to some lengths to actually, even, even for a plot of this relative simplicity, to, to go through it and sort of say, okay, well, here's the story that we, that we roughly want to tell. And then there's sort of the, the very technical aspect of how do you do that? You know, you, you, you have to work out the plot and sort of the path that everybody's choices take. And you, you kind of say, okay, well, we need these two characters to do this at this time. Why are they going to do that? You know, what's their motivation? What situation happens that forces them to do that? So there's, there's things like, you know, we knew that we wanted to have the group split up at some point because that introduces all sorts of interesting possibilities. And, and it was quite a lot of work to, to get to a point where it was logical for one of the characters to leave, one of the other characters to follow, and the other two characters to stay behind, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's always sort of, a difficult thing in these horror movies. <laughs> if you've done it well, then it doesn't seem like that when you're watching it, because it just seems like it flows. But mm -hmm. to actually get something that feels organic and natural is, is a really hard job. And again, it's something that I didn't really appreciate before doing this. Uh, but I actually, I, I quite enjoyed that. It, it, I think a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of filmmaking is kind of problem solving. Yes. And as a scientist myself, you know, that's, that's kind of, I like that. I, I like being given a problem and saying, okay, solve it, and, and you have to think about it and, and sort of go through it logically. And so there's, there's definitely, as much as there is an art to these things, there's definitely a sort of a craft as well. There's this technical side of how do I take these things and put them together in a way that doesn't come out as dog food. You, know? <laughs> you, can't, just, you can't just put it in a blender and pray. You've got you to gotta, you gotta think about it really carefully and go through all sorts of iterations and try something out and then it doesn't work and you rewrite it and then you try it again and it doesn't work and you rewrite it. And it takes a long time, but it's fun. And I like uh, the term dog food. That, um, <laughs> I might use that in the future. <laughs> you know, it's up to the viewer to decide whether it is dog food, but uh, <laughs> we've done our best at least. Well, you know, I think certainly on the spectrum of uh, highly independent, low budget, and uh, and as to, to use your term, amateur filmmaking, I think you put together a, a really impressive product, and it's great that you you have it online for for anyone to check out. Yeah, well, we uh, we didn't want to restrict it. You know, we we, we said okay, we, we we've had some fun making this, and if people want to see it, then great. But we don't want to we don't want to presume to to charge them for that. I think it's just, it's, it's something that we've primarily done for ourselves. Mm -hmm. uh, to, to put it online for free and get the response that we've had is incredible. You know, it's fantastic. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think, I, I would rather people see it than they try to make yeah. money for it. That's just the take that we have. There's, it's, it's a choice. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong with charging for these sort of things. But it, it's, that's just how we felt about it, that, that we were more interested in people seeing it, really. I think the reason you've gotten the response is... I guess the thesis of our entire conversation, which is you're appealing to uh, two very large fascinations. One is, of course, this uh, this kind of uh, the zombie fascination and the horror fascination. And also you're appealing to there is a lot of fascination with the LHC. It probably in the last decade is the largest thing that has entered the public consciousness yeah. from the scientific community. So it, it's like our space program. Yeah, I uh, know. I agree. I, and I think... I think it's great that that's happened, and I think, like I said, about sort of a, a sense of wonder. You know, I think I think people I think people have that about the LHC. It has it has the power to inspire that, um, which is which is really nice because I think you you kind of 
I'm a little bit low to use the, use the phrase trickle-down effect. Uh, <laughs> yes. All sorts of connotations, but I think there is kind of a, a trickle-down from that into just science in general, you know? You say, look, this is what, this is what you can do with science. This is, it's cool. You can look at the, the, the smallest scale of the universe and the largest scale of the universe, and to, to get involved in that is, is a really great thing. So I think that, that has, a, has really positive ramifications for just involvement in science in general. And like I say, even if people don't end up becoming scientists, the willingness to understand science and appreciate it and, and, and sort of know what it's about is really important. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we don't need everybody to be working in particle physics. We don't need everybody to be, to be working in chemistry or biology. But I think the more people actually understand what science is about, then basically the better we're likely to be as a society. I mean, that's, that's, a, very, that's a very broad statement, but I, I think it's true. So I think that's really important. And I think a statement like that keeps you motivated to go to work every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I think we'll wrap it up now. I, I just had a blast talking to you about science and crazy monster movies. Yeah. I do run a film festival in San Diego, and I've been talking with, with your screening department about yeah. bringing the film here for a screening. So I'd, I'd love to show it to a crowd in San Diego and talk about it. And I would love you to do so. I think that would be really cool. I, I like I say, I'm, I I just want people to see it, and I, I think it's really cool that that so many people have, and so many people are interested in it. I will definitely let you know what the reactions are. Cool. Thanks so much. Uh, I've been speaking with Luke Thompson, director and writer of a film called Decay, a zombie movie that takes place at CERN, the home of the Large Hadron Collider, which is uh, pretty fascinating and exciting. So thanks so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Luke Thompson, the accelerator physicist at CERN, where they house the Large Hadron Collider, also the writer-director of a zombie film called Decay, which was filmed at CERN itself. This was my 100th episode. In less than three years, I've compiled 100 episodes discussing horror in history, art, literature, film, and beyond to bring to the masses. I want to thank all my listeners for sticking with me this far. I hope my episodes are getting better as I go on. It's a bit of my pride and joys. I made an untold number of great friends doing this and my film festival in the last couple of years. And, uh, and I can't be more grateful for it. For those of you who know me and, uh, and those of you who have listened to my episodes where I get a little more personal, this has been a difficult weekend because my dog, Cheswick, who used to enjoy hearing me record these episodes so much, succumbed to cancer this weekend and we had to say goodbye. And so that was very difficult. So I just wanted to mention Cheswick in this episode and say how much I love that little dog. He was a great little dachshund. And uh, I posted a video of him running around and playing and being happy on my personal Facebook page. So if you are so inclined, you can go check that out. Uh, but doing things like this really helps to make life pretty excellent. So again, for all my listeners, everyone who's my friend, everyone who's my family, everyone who uh, is so supportive of me, know that it is greatly appreciated. Coming soon to the Monster Island Resort, I am going to continue my combination of real science with science fiction and horror when I am joined by entomologist Dr. Michael Wall, who works at San Diego's Natural History Museum 
I recently met Dr. Wall because I was invited to join a, a discussion panel after they screened the film Them, the giant ant film from the 50s. And that was a lot of fun. And it coincided with a great bug exhibit they have going on at the Natural History Museum right now, which is also known as the Nat here in San Diego. And it's really lovely that they are doing things like screening films like them in conjunction with that. And they're doing it with commentary that highlights some of the science behind some of the science fiction. And it's a lot of fun. It's great. Uh, so I can't wait to be joined by Dr. Michael Wall as we take a look at science fiction and the real science behind it or uh, or beside it, as the case may be. And uh, again, I want to thank everybody for being around for these 100 episodes of the Monster Island Resort. And as always, until the next episode, stay scared. 